Hey crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. Before we get started this week, I wanted to announce that Enterprising Individuals is holding its first live taping of the show this July at Convergence Con 2017. It's a special occasion, and as such, we'll be talking about a special selection, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. That's right, it's our first stab at taking on a Trek movie, and one that just celebrated its 35th anniversary, no less. And as such, I'm going to need more help than usual. Joining me on the show will be William Leisner, Trek author and three-time winner of the Strange New Worlds writing competition, Patrick Tomlinson, writer of The Ark and Trident's Forge, and a stand-up comedian, Christopher Jones, comic artist on Doctor Who, the third Doctor for Titan Comics, and previous artist on Young Justice, The Batman Strikes, and Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and Convergence guest of honor, Naomi Kritzer, who is a Hugo and Locus award-winning novelist and writer of short stories. That is a murderer's row of talent, and if some rock-like aliens were to recreate figures from Earth history to deliver the most entertaining and insightful hour about the Wrath of Khan, these are the four humans that they'd pick. Sorry, Abe Lincoln. Convergence is the world's greatest fan-run convention. It's four wonderful days of fun, cosplay, weirdness, partying, and understanding, man. It's happening this July 6th through the 9th, and if you're planning on going or in the Twin Cities area, please come to our live show. You can get more information about Convergence at convergence-con.org. You can get more information about our live taping at facebook.com forward slash EISTpod. And while you're on Facebook, like the Enterprising Individuals page to get more updates. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter, too, at twitter.com forward slash EISTpod. Also, please check out Fearless Comedy at fearlesscomedyproductions.com. All one word. Fearless is a comedy troupe whose mission is to encourage and promote risk-taking comedy in the Twin Cities. But, like, funny risks, not tugging on Superman's cape or using dirty needles. Find out more about them at their website or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Fearless Comedy Productions. Have a laugh. You've earned it. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and I, too, am greeted with a zest for life every morning when I look in the mirror, if zest can be defined as a yawning, existential sense of impending doom. Note to self, refill, abilify, prescription. I'm joined in this episode by Sidious DeRaven. Sidious is the co-head of programming for Convergence, a four-day fan-run sci-fi and fantasy convention in the Twin Cities area. He's also the host of the Extreme Tasting League podcast, on which he and co-hosts Dave and Perrin seek out new liquors of the aged variety and new taste sensations. And he's also the president of the board of directors for Fearless Comedy. Sidious, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Permission to come aboard granted. Today, we'll be talking about Dr. Bashir, I presume, the 16th episode of the fifth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, in which we learn a dark secret about Julian Bashir's past. 
I'm tempted to call it an unorthodox episode, uh, but that might be somewhat redundant for Deep Space Nine, where episodes often deal in unique circumstances. But the reveal in this episode adds a new facet to a character that we might not be as familiar with as we think. But we can get to that a little later in the show. First, your backstory. How'd you become a Star Trek fan? Uh, I grew up with Star Trek, actually. So my my mother watched it in first run. Mm. Uh, and then syndication's a wonderful thing. And so when, yes. it, when it came time for her to to raise her children, uh, I'm the one who chose to be raised geek. Um, so I followed in my mother's footsteps. Is it kind of like being a, a half-elf in Tolkien's universe? You can choose to embrace your, your human side or your elven side? You have other uh, siblings who are like, nah, we're not going to do the geek thing. Um, arguably, yes. My, 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 my younger brother uh, very much... Uh, I, I'm urban. He's rural. Um, that oil and waters, city mouse, country mouse. It's sure. very much. Sure. There is no question. The only thing that we share at all that I can recall, besides our love of Weird Al, is karaoke. But I won't sing the same songs he will uh, okay. because he likes country. Sure. And again, <laughs> city mouse. No. Right. Um, right. And I was raised with an appreciation for enunciation. Sure, and so there, there's certain there's certain aspects of the genre that just don't appeal to me personally in the same way that I can't listen to Larry the Cable Guy for very long. Okay, all right. I'm, I'm a comedy fan. I can deal with Foxworthy and Engvall, Engvall more than Foxworthy generally. But you know, that's... sure. Where are you on Tater Salad? Uh, I love me some Tater Salad. <laughs> Okay, uh, yeah. He also is a Scotch guy, so oh, you know, right. we, exactly. we have that in common. <laughs> right. Uh, well, let's let's talk about that. Uh, let's talk about uh, Extreme Tasting League. Um, how did that get its start? That grew out of a social occasion that my co-host Dave and I had with two other former LARP friends. Okay. Um, ten, eight to ten years after that LARP was over, we're like, hey, we miss hanging with you guys. Let's get together and hang out. And our, our reason so that we had an excuse to make sure we kept doing this, was each of us liked whiskey. Mm -hmm. Um, They each had a single malt of choice, where I'd mostly been an Irish whiskey guy. And we said, you know what? Interesting. There's a a width and breadth of single malt scotch out there. Let's decide as a group to Mm -hmm. once every month to two months get together, buy something that's at least 10 years old, a single malt, at least $40 and ideally something we've never had before. Yeah. And just get some, some deeper knowledge of what's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guested on uh, a podcast for the first time, grooved on it. Uh, so this, this could be an interesting idea. One, one, one of my uh, co-conspirators in that little scotch club said, you know what? We should do this. We should just turn on a mic and, and go. Um, <laughs> the thing is, is, is we would generally sit there for four to six hours rambling on stuff. <laughs> sure. And that did not for a podcast make. <laughs> so we tried to structure it up a little bit, and that took away the flavor of the gathering to the other two gentlemen. But Dave and I were said, screw it. We're going to keep doing this. Sure. And so uh, hence Extreme Tasting League Scotch. And, and I, I shouldn't have said screw it because screw it is our wine show. Right, yeah. Not hosted by us, but hosted by former guests that we have had on the Scott show. Sure. Uh, Don Krasnowski and Laura, uh, Lana Chris- Rosario. And I wanted to mention that I did the show as well, and it was a lot of fun. And the um, I can't even remember now what the scotches were, but they were – so at this point, you've been doing this for five years. So you guys have left the Glenfiddichs and the McCallans far, far behind. Uh, not entirely true. Um We've left the basic 12 years that you find at every bar right. well behind. Right. Because honestly, uh, those two in particular were episode three, I oh, think, sure. when we recorded right. with, with uh, Ishmael Williams from Convergence. 
But um, but we actually, as of the time in which we are recording this, the the last <clears throat> excuse me, the most recently posted episode is a Glenfiddich of their experimental line that they just started. <laughs> oh boy! And their first experiment was to finish in an IPA barrel. Okay. That's never that, been done before. Get that hop craze. Yeah. Oh, boy. So here's the thing. The reason I drink liquor is that I haven't liked most beer. <laughs> and in speaking to my beer-loving friends yeah. and describing the few beers that I have liked, their answer was, oh, that's easy. You just don't like hops. So I knew I was likely to not like this bottle. Right. Turns out I liked it the most of everybody at the table. Huh. Um, Dave enjoyed it, and I think variants of our scale taken into consideration, we probably liked it more or less equally well. Sure. The trick for me on that particular bottle is I am not personally a fan of banana or banana bread, uh -huh. and the the finish to me was very much a, uh, a good banana bread. Okay, all right. Um, so even not liking banana or banana bread as a general thing this wasn't bad we've, we've had things where the banana flavor was either stronger or you know in a direction i didn't care for but sure. um to each their own so if you like banana bread and your palate is like mine this will be awesome for you interesting um like a natural banana taste or like like whatever there's banana candy i, I never like the no fake banana it, it, taste. It, it's not like this, this is why i went with banana bread uh -huh. is is one you know it, it being a scotch you're gonna you often get a bready or a, or a, a malty a cereal flavor yeah. um, in the finish. Um, but specifically here, it, it came out as a, it reminded me very much of my, my mom's banana bread recipe. So it, it's very much the, mm. you know, legitimate, you know, commercially available real fruit banana, not the fruit flavor mm. Laffy Taffy banana, which we've also <laughs> had in, in as a finish or a, or a, or a palette. Uh, and I really didn't like those. Sure. So um, yes. You guys should have like a special episode where you just go straight for like the garbage scotch. Just try to instead of trying to get like the best finest. Just I keep trying to convince the guys that since we are running out of single malts in our price range, because after five years, sure, um, we really need to either consider doing some of the blends, and maybe we maybe we can make the concession of at least there'll be good blends and right. not <laughs> right. all the blends. But honestly, I would very much like to do a. Okay, so here's the garbage that you generally find in bars, and we're going to describe why we don't like it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. And we'll do the Dewar's White and the Johnny Walker Red. Yeah, um, the Rain Bucket 12 Day. Or we'll do the cheap stuff, and like Cutty Sark or other things. Yeah, like, right. No. Um, but the, the purpose of the show is to educate people on single malts because there is such a width and breadth, and because the bottles are as pricey as they are, to go in and just randomly pick a bottle. Right. And say, okay, I'm going to drop $70 on this thing I've never had, and I have no idea if the tasting notes on the side are legit or not. Yeah. Uh, and, and we, as unprofessionally trained tasters, are just saying, here's what my palate gets. Right. Um, and, and our hope is, is that you'll use the, the cheap bottle shows to find out whose palate you most match. Sure. Mine, pa parents, or Dave's. Yeah. And then judge from our scores what you think and just having so, been on the show with you guys i think that you guys do have a sort of a spread a, a range of palette uh, there as well we do the, the the one problem that we have in addition to being all male voices sadly we, we were really hoping to get a female co-host but uh perrin was the, the the person who was available and we love perrin as a host don't want i don't want to <laughs> knock perrin <laughs> he's the first to go though but but we we, we did tr actively try after our first season to to get a female voice 
um, really there. And, and we've been trying to get more female guests because we, we, we do believe Scott shouldn't just be a guy thing. I mean, wine is traditionally the the female while the, the guys drink the hard liquor. But I know plenty of women who love the hard liquor. And I know plenty of guys who like wine. So we're trying to make it clear that, no, it's to each their own. Don't yuck my yum. Have fun. Do your thing. Right. Um, but uh, – we do all like the the, the PD smoky, so we mm. tend to to favor those and and score those probably more highly. Even within that category, I mean, th- those scotches will all come out as positive for us, but within them, we still score them fairly. So um, I'm looking forward. At the same time, I bought this uh, the Glenfiddich IPA. I bought the new Ardbeg Kelpie, hmm. um, which we have not yet tasted as of this recording, uh, and probably won't for four months because we've got way too many Highland parks that we need to try. <laughs> uh, we've got four Highland parks in the kitty and we only have a year's worth of show. So uh, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, some, some distilleries are more prolific than others. And this is, this is why that's a, a, a thing. And so we try to make sure we, we space them out accordingly. So we're not just doing, you know, uh, too many of the same distillery back to right, back to back. Right. So. Just a string of space ads or whatever. Yeah. Uh, tell me about fearless comedy. So Fearless Comedy Productions, it's a local theater company. Um, I have been involved for a little over three years now myself. Um, the company officially founded January of 2013, um, and it grew out of another local show that can be seen out at the Renaissance Festival called Vilification Tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of the members said, hey, with the, show, <clears throat> excuse me, with the shows we've been doing at the Bryant Lake Bowl, we have been incorporating improv games or other silly things and we we really have been enjoying that and we want to spin off that aspect of of comedy outside of the the insult comedy tennis <laughs> and really work on doing some other comedy performance art and because we're used to doing a blue show or a show that pushes in you know uh, um offensive boundaries right. um that maybe that could be the focus of that comedy company is, is, is one that pushes the envelope in those directions or, or is willing to take risks that safer companies would not consider doing. Sure. Um, and so we started out um, creating a, a couple of small shows. We had a sketch show for a while. We had a variety show. We have an experimental lab show, which is still running. And we uh, almost a year in created a improv show. Which has done really well, uh, but the Minneapolis area is very good. Im- improv is mm-hmm. is a very well liked thing yeah. here for whatever reason. We are we are one of the biggest improv communities in the nation. Yeah, um, I mean the Dudley Riggs was here for for years, so uh, we we we've got the street cred. Uh, where can people go to find out more about Fearless Comedy? Uh, our website is fearlesscomedyproductions.com. All space together there's no dots or hyphens or anything in there sure um and then we also are on facebook uh and then my podcast uh you can find at scotch.xtlpodcast.com okay um i want to talk a little more about convergence but we should probably actually start talking about star trek so uh, as far as this episode goes uh can you tell me why you wanted to discuss it specifically um one, I would say Bashir was always a character that resonated with me um, from the from the first episode in the pilot where he shows up and he's immediately hitting on Jadzia. Um, <laughs> he, he was the overachiever whose social skills were maybe questionable, sure. but he had a good eye for the ladies and utterly failed to get on with any of them. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, 
I I understood that character. Sure. Um, <laughs> but as, as as the series grew, you know, he he got to know people and he he found his niche and and he was able to to become friends with you know the the crew around him. Um, and and he was a, a bright character, and and I I enjoy intellectual stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm that I'm that kind of geek. Um, and then honestly, this this episode where, the, where there's this reveal is like, oh, he's got a dark side too, and how he interacted with his parents often kind of spoke to me too. Yeah, but that's I'm less okay with being okay with that, but just that was still a thing. Sure, and the secret that's revealed could threaten to take apart this life that he has built, this yes. respect that he has gained. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, great reason. Let's talk about Dr. Bashir, I presume, as I said before, the 16th episode of the fifth season of DS9. It first aired on February 24th, 1997. The teleplay here is by Ronald D. Moore, who needs no introduction, I think, to any Star Trek fan. The story is by Jimmy Diggs, who, uh, this is his only story credit for DS9, although he did have a story credits for six Voyager episodes. Um, after he pitched the story for this episode to Paramount, he didn't hear back from the producers for like over a year. And when he eventually did get a call, it was from Ronald D. Moore. And he didn't believe that it was Ronald D. Moore. <laughs> the guy's like, oh, it was Ronald D. Moore. Sure it is. Sure it is. He thought his friends were screwing with him. Uh, so he made uh, Ronald D. Moore like actually prove that it was him. I don't know how he did that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he recited his I, serial I, number. Or I also would, would question if, if like the high muckety-muck of the show I was trying to write for was like, personally gave me a call yeah i know you think it'd be just some secretary or page or something like that right but you don't get a call from like rick hi this is rick berman uh we really love your script uh it was directed by david livingston uh that's a name that you'll see in the first few minutes of just about every tng episode Uh, he was a supervising producer on the next generation deep space nine and voyager he also has directorial credits on two next gen episodes 17 deep space nine episodes 28 Voyager episodes and 15 Enterprise episodes. So that's a total of 62 episodes across the four spinoff series. Uh, he's the most prolific director in the franchise. Uh, he also wrote the story for the DS9 first season episode, The Nagus. And fun fact, the lionfish in the ready room of Captain Picard on TNG, his name's Livingston, after him. Uh, and the start date for this episode is unknown. It is not given. So your mission, if you can, is to give me a 25-word synopsis of Dr. Bashir, I presume. Okay. Uh, as a listener of the podcast, I am prepared. Okay. When Bashir is chosen as the model for Starfleet's new holographic doctor program, the process threatens to expose a dark secret from his past. Also, Ram tries asking out Lita. Perfect. I was trying to count on my fingers as I, as I went. but I, I, I believe that's either 25 or 26. All right, that's events. perfect. It's, it's right there. That's perfect. Uh, yes. Um, interesting facts about the episodes. Uh, Brian George plays Julian's father, Richard Bashir, on the episode. He's probably best known to older listeners for playing Babu Bhatt on Seinfeld and perhaps to younger viewers for playing Raj's father on The Big Bang Theory. Julian's mother, Amsha, is played by Dr. Fadwa Elgindi, who was a professor of anthropology, no joke, at UCLA, and an advisor to President Clinton at one point on Middle East policy. Why is she in this episode? I don't know. This is her only acting credit. Uh, in the 90s, she co-wrote a community play for a nonprofit dedicated to Arab American art in L.A. And a few days before the performance, uh, the lead actress of the play dropped out, and so she sort of reluctantly filled in. And it's L.A., so of course, a casting agent was in the audience. And a few months later, she got a call. Who knows if it was from Ronald D. Moore or not, and was asked to audition for the role of Dr. Bashir's mother. And she took the opportunity because she thought that it was a good opportunity uh, to increase Arab-American representation. And uh, she's pretty good, I think. I mean, 
I don't think she gets like she didn't really get a lot of lines. I think the main conflict is really with Julian and his father. In this. Yeah, uh, I, I I would agree that she does a decent job for for the part that, that it was. I mean, I, I I've seen more wooden acting in Star Wars, so you know, um, <laughs> yeah. there, there's that. But uh, I I think for someone who obviously is has not had the background in acting that most of the performers that you see on the Star Trek series do. Yeah. Um, she, she does a, a very good job. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a testament to their casting department in general in that when I think about from DS9, TNG, whatever, um, who, what, what, who's the worst guest star or like the most wooden acting? I don't really come up with much. Like it's generally, they're pretty great. Like when, when you might not like, like a specific character or something about them, right. but I think the performances are pretty solid usually across the board. Well, this episode of course also features Robert Picardo in the role of Dr. Lewis Zimmerman. Oh, my favorite. Yes. Creator of the EMH program seen on Star Trek Voyager. Uh, the character, this character has appeared twice previously on Voyager in the episodes projections and the swarm and would appear again in Voyager in the episode lifeline. And the character was named for the longtime Trek production designer, Herman Zimmerman. And um, bonus fact, the episode was, of course, directed by uh, David Livingston. So I presume, I presume that the I presume is just a coincidence. It It's funny. I mean, it's one of those in in gags if you are really the one paying attention sure. to all those things. And I suppose they could have called it anything, but they're like, hey, Dave's directing this thing. I mean, technically, it's a line in the script. So, right. Yeah. We'll just put I that mean, in there. But no, um, as far as, as uh, Robert Picardo, uh, I, I do have a, a fondness for for his performances as, as a general rule um and because of the holographic doctor actually my world of warcraft main who is a shadow priest is actually named picardo oh, really? okay <laughs> so uh I, I have a special love for uh for that character and for the holographic doctor not I, i'm not the hugest voyager fan but uh i i do appreciate the holographic doctor yeah it's great too and he kind of was set up like you know he was in uh what was it first contact like mm-hmm. he's kind of set up where if you did another star trek show he could be in it easily. But, of course, the next show they did goes back 200 years, and he's kind of out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> so it's too bad. Uh, although uh, Brent Spider did get a chance to show up in Enterprise, though. Uh, this episode, like a lot of DS9 episodes, you know, it feels like a slice of life on the station. You know, we get to see what everybody's up to in little glances. Um, but it, it's significant because we really learned that the truth of Bashir's backstory, that he was genetically enhanced as a child. But that was not the original A story of the episode. Originally, the conflict uh, or the sort of will-they-won't-they-get-together uh, of Ram and Lita was the sort of the A story, the, the the original big story. And then the elements of Bashir becoming the model for the LMH was the secondary story. And reportedly more, as the teleprate uh, writer knew that the Ram Lita stuff was good, but it, it couldn't support an entire episode. And so he went looking for an element that could add complexity to Bashir's story. And according to him, he was talking to Rene Ishavaria, who was a Trek writer and producer, about the lack of genetic science in the 24th century and said, why don't we add that to the show? And that leads me to ask as well, where is genetic engineering in the 24th century? One has to wonder, and and this is me just extrapolating from from all the canon that I'm aware of, is with the eugenics wars that happened uh, 300 years, I think, prior to uh, yeah. the show in the timeline where it's, sure. it said 200 in the episode and, and they admit that mistake yeah. somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a weird um, blip. It's a gaff, but, uh, you know, Khan. Uh, I mean, so so scrolling back to things, the eugenics wars and and, and Khan being who he was and, and having at this point in the timeline of, of people seeing Star Trek, there's both Space Seed and, of course, the Wrath of Khan right. that we see. Here's what happens when genetic engineering goes wrong as applied to people if you're trying to weed for specific traits. Sure. Um, now it's stated in this episode that 
it is legal for certain things, which means it does exist and it's there. But I mean, with the question that we're seeing today of, are we playing God to manipulate the genome of things and GMOs being this big hyper yeah. overhyped, not really a problem thing. <laughs> well. um, not to get on a soapbox. The, the concept of genetic manipulation being taboo probably in universe plays mostly because of the eugenics wars out of universe would play now because of the whole GMO thing. Sure. Why it would have played in the late nineties when that wasn't really a thing yet. Yeah. Outside of the fact that there was a thing in, in genetic science in, you know, in, in the 60s uh, where um, eugenics was something that was popularized by a lot of people. Um, and there's, there's some, some big names, some, a lot of uh, philanthropic investors that were throwing money at genetics with the idea of we would do a eugenics thing to try to weed out the bad traits in humans so to improve ourselves as a race. Sure. And as the overtones of that were explained as like, you know, this is just, we Hitler kind of liked that idea. And mm. there's, 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 there's maybe people who like really jumped on board with this idea that maybe soured it in the minds of everybody. So maybe this is not such a popular thing. Yeah. Um, there was actually even a recent city pages article a month or two back about someone whose mother had gotten a college scholarship because his, uh, the, the writer's grandfather or grandmother. Um, I don't remember which, um, was a genetic scientist around that time and was working at a lab that was named after um, Dewey. And okay. Dewey's in one of those names that has been scratched off of all the things, mm. like those buildings get renamed. Um, and the philanthropist that was sending the money, I don't remember. Fairly famous, though. It was it was very much supportive of, of eugenics and had corresponded personally with Hitler. And, oh boy. And, yeah. So, so <laughs> eugenics leaves a sour taste in the mouth of most people who yeah. know anything about the science at all. And so I presume that is where they were kind of doing the whole genetic engineering is bad. We've got the eugenics wars. Let's just keep it bad. Yeah. Even though, in theory, it'd be really great for some things. But misapplied. I mean, there, there's, there's – sure. there's, a modern example is uh, people talking about um, autism, and if, and if there's a genetic cause, the, mm. the Autism Speaks group um, is talking about finding the cure for autism. And, of course, there's plenty of autistic people that say, I don't need a freaking cure. I, I, I'm a human being. Respect me for who I am. Yes, I have this difference from you. Right. Who cares? Right. Yes, does it make certain social things weird for me? Yeah, guess whose problem that is? Mine. Leave, you know, don't, don't breed me out. I also think that it possibly is the fact that even though they're writing this in the 90s, the tenets that were sort of set up or the sort of guidelines about Star Trek from the 60s are still sort of around. Because you'll notice also, so 60s civil rights movement, they're very committed to having um, infinite diversity and infinite uh, combinations. Yep. Um, a big th thing back then, atomic power is something that they that people thought it was good people thought it was dangerous yeah three mile island and all that and so you don't hear i mean they've invented this wonderful new technology of you know warp energy and things like that but you don't hear about atomic power as well in their future and it's almost like their future even being written in the 90s is still sort of a answer to all the fears of the of the 60s and the 70s well the, the great thing is if you um Science, or if you uh, techno babble away the, the the science, so you don't have to explain 
So you know how much energy it would take to actually run a transporter? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's just work around that by saying we have this energy source. It works and you don't have to think about it. And we're never going to go into the details so you can't science out of it. Right. Just just accept that it works and move on. Suspension of disbelief. Go. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, Siddig apparently was not happy with that particular story element. Um not presumably because it wasn't interesting for him to play as an actor, but he didn't like the fact that it was added so quickly and without input input from him. Um, and he was actually able to influence the producers to alter the end of the story from his genetic enhancements being a secret that would he have to continue to keep, uh, mainly because he thought that it would be detrimental to his performance. He didn't want to have to come out now for ongoing episodes and have Bashir have this secret that he's got to keep, you know, right. waiting for the shoe to drop. And I can understand his reasoning, but... The fact that this part of his backstory is never really focused on again in the show makes me think that leaving it as a secret might have been had more story potential. Well, technically speaking, it's not completely ignored in the rest of the show. Mm. There are a couple of instances where it is expressly brought up, um, specifically the two episodes where the other groups of genetically modified That's individuals yeah. show up. Um, and the reason they show up the first time is because since Bashir was successful... He might be able to relate to them. I in think that ways was a, the others statistical could. probabilities. I think was the name of the episode. I, that that that. But I there's can't like speak. a four or five different people who all have kind of different yes. problems because and of their... and then there's another episode where he manages to figure out how to fix one of them so that she can behave normally. Okay. Um, because her problem was that she was thinking so fast it was uh, her brain and her motor function couldn't coordinate with each other and so she lost the ability to really do anything yeah because the synapses were just firing too fast and so okay. he found a way to slow it down sure. uh, and then there's the one where they figured out that the best way to win the dominion war is to lose and then come back to the next generation right um which no one particularly cared for yeah right um <laughs> so uh and i believe it's possible that even one of the section 31 episodes references it but i don't remember with a certainty if Sloan calls out Bashir and and tries to recruit him into service because of that, right? Or in spite th- of that, think yeah, I think it, it. I think he does mention that aspect of of Bashir, but it's never really held up. Like, boy, it sure would be a shame if everybody knew about your yeah. little, little and, and 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 there's and there's the occasional like one liner drop here and there about it, um, usually in a sarcastic fashion and often from O'Brien. Yeah. If, if, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Having to do with but... darts or something like that. Let's talk about the man behind Bashir, the character of Bashir, um, and the character of Bashir himself, uh, Alexander Siddig, um, as he's sometimes credited, Siddig El-Fadil. Or if you want to use his full name, which I'm going to get it right this time, I swear, Siddig El-Tahir El-Fadil El-Siddig Abdurrahman Mohammed Ahmed Abdel Karim El-Mahdi. I like the fact that, like you said before, um, that Bashir is this interesting mix of of characters like he comes in he's a good looking guy he's accomplished and yet he seems to have these characteristics that every, if you watch go back and watch the first couple episodes everybody's rolling their eyes at this guy you know because he's always saying the wrong thing or he's confident but he comes across as smug and it's great to see the character have develop you know over mm-hmm. over the seasons um he really grows as the show goes on um because he literally goes from like He's the doctor guy, basically, in the pilot, who, you know, insultingly wants to explore frontier medicine. And I, he just has a really nice arc. You know, he he really connects with the rest of the crew, especially with O'Brien. Um, they're kind of one of my favorite romances, I think, um, in Star Trek. They are an interesting pair. And when I first started watching the series, I'm like, really? That's the buddy thing that's going to happen here? Yeah. It's not... 
it's not that Bashir's going to get over his crush on Jadzia and they're going to bond over science stuff. Right. It's that he's going to be with the ops guy who is the everyman blue collar guy on the, on, on, on the, on the show. Yeah. And so I, it was, it was, it was almost an odd couple. Right. We wouldn't expect them necessarily to yeah. get together, but yeah, you've got, um, and that's in, kind of tested in this, but you've got episodes like this. You've got the episode, I can't remember which one it is, but um, that everybody always talks about where they're drinking and they're, and they're like singing the drinking songs together and stuff like that. And you never, th- you'd never think that you would get there from kind of where we start. Yeah. DS9 as a whole did a really good job of developing all the characters. I, 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 as much as I love TNG, I felt very little actual progression. This was still the time where episodic television was episodic television. You you didn't really have these long continuing story arcs. You you would that was for, that was for soap operas, not for hour long primetime dramas. You wanted to be able to to pop in, watch a show, maybe miss a few, be able to pop in and still be fine. Mm-hmm. But you had shows like Dark Shadows, and then you know, but around the same time as as you know this episode, you know Buffy was coming out, right? And yeah. so I mean, DS Nine and 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 Buffy really kind of set the stage for the story arc driven stuff that we're seeing yeah. all over the place now. Um, apparently Rick Berman uh, originally wanted Siddig as Cisco. Um, he had seen him um, in movie. I think he, he was in like a, a Lawrence of Arabia sequel, like on an, in a TV sure. movie. And they had him dressed up as he was playing Faisal, uh, the Alec Guinness character. And I guess he looked a lot older Then they had him come in. And it's like, this guy's in his 20s. Like he can't there's no way he can play this guy who's a widower with like a kid and stuff like that. So they started to scramble and look around for like another role for him to do. Um, but, you know, that might have been that'd be an interesting alternate universe, maybe. Um, I'm not sure who would be the doctor then. And of course, we'd lose Avery Brooks. Um, as the And that Cisco. would be a shame because yeah. Cisco is my captain. Yeah. To- you know, jump the gun on a question I know might be coming later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we talked previously about Richard and Amsha as Julian's parents. And Richard is an interesting character. Um, we all know that things are different. The economy, uh, society is different than the 21st century. But I guess you don't have to be successful. Like, is there, can you take being kind of a deadbeat dreamer to a new level in the 24th century? One has to wonder if if scarcity isn't a thing and you have this social society where you will be looked after you, you, you know, your day to day needs are taken care of and you don't have to worry about that. Sure. What does one do with one's life? Uh, obviously through the lens of Starfleet that we see exploration is something that, you know, reaching out and like, we have the opportunity to go and broaden our horizons in the universe and meet other people and learn about ourselves through them, which we're supposed to do as ourselves viewing the show. Right. Um, Apparently, mining is still a profession that's a big deal, uh, <laughs> or at least in, in the T- in TOS. Um, colonist is a popular profession. But, yeah, I mean, we don't see a lot of what is life on Earth in this time for J-Random Guy. Right. The, honestly, DS9 gives us a little bit more exposure than we ever had before, and then we see Cisco's dad's a chef. He runs a restaurant. So sure. restaurants are still a thing, right. even though you can, you know— uh, replicate your food. Um, there, there is a group of people who either appreciate the art of cooking or, like McCoy, this damn bangled technology. I yeah. want the real stuff, yeah, and, right. and therefore still want restaurants and grocery stores. One has to wonder when people uh, get up from Cisco's table, they just go, "That was great," and walk out, or like, "How does it work? Do they is there gratuity?" Or yeah, where I, does he get his his uh, seafood from and his uh, clams or whatever? 
Well, he's New Orleans, right? I mean, sure, you're yeah. right there. But does um, he, he just goes out and picks him up? Well, one imagines there's there's still you know the the, the chain of people that so you you you've got the fishmonger and you you've got the person who goes out and catches the crawdads and then there's the central repository with you know I'll just call it a grocery store where he goes and and gets those things. <laughs> so, but everything's going to be fresh. So. The, the nice thing about this is, all right, you want Maine lobster? Uh, transport Maine lobster. You oh, have okay. Maine lobster. Sure. So we know vintners are still out there. That's true. Um, I would imagine that most jobs still exist in some form. Yeah. Well, it's like you mentioned that every point in that chain that you mentioned is like the fishmonger must just really love pointing out delicious fish to people, and the guy that catches them must just really love the sea or something like that, if we're still going to have that chain. Yeah. Another thing that we don't see very often in Trek that, as far as we know, is going to be a big a thing, you don't see a lot of automation. They must have it. One, one would imagine. Um, but replicators. I mean, this, this, this is the thing is, how exactly do replicators work, and what is the limit of replication? Uh-huh. Um, there's a running gag on another uh, podcast that I'm aware of, the puppies. What happened to the puppies? <laughs> um, because there was an episode of TNG where the the classroom that Alexander was in had a bunch of puppies. Right. You don't see a lot of dogs running around on the Enterprise, and yeah. I don't want to see what high tech pooper scoopers look like. But you know, I'm sure there are some. Oh, no. um, You're saying that they replicated those puppies? That is one of the theories in the show. <laughs> I I did not come up with that theory. Please no. They, they were just holographic. They were just holographic. Puppies. I believe Ken came up with that theory. So All right, we're done with the puppies me. in the um, shoot. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like okay, so you're replicating your food. You're replicating these other tools that you need. Yeah. One, what is the level of sophistication at which the replication doesn't work such that it has to be manufactured? Sure. Because there has to be that line. Starships are built, not replicated. Yeah. Well, I suppose if, you could replicate like components. If you built a massive enough replicator, could you just copy the Enterprise? Yeah, I suppose you could. And then where does the matter that the replicator is using come from? Is, yeah, well, is, it's... Is, is there a section of the Enterprise that's basically one big bay of hydrogen atoms condensed? Yeah. That it's like, all right, we need this many protons, this many neutrons, this many electrons, go. Or a bay of puppies, too. Or we a just, bay of puppies. It runs off of puppies. Uh, that's an interesting point. You know, we, we the show always focuses on like these military ships of the line that have the best technology um, and they have it for a particular purpose, which is we're going out for months, maybe years. We're going to need replicators. Maybe the average Starfleet person or, or a Starfleet person, Federation citizen doesn't have a replicator. Or maybe there's a city replicator where it's like, oh, um, city manager, I need a new stepladder or something like that. He's like, okay, I'll get a requisition that for you. Yeah, it's not a grocery store. It's just a repository of yeah. a dozen replicators and you go and get what you need. You put it in your bag and you go home. Sure, yeah. yeah. And even then, if you know, if they don't have money, you could still have some form of, and I hesitate to say currency, but at least like credit, maybe or value. Platinum. Like you've yeah, there you go. Uh, you've this is your twelfth step ladder this week. Uh, what are you doing with all these step ladders? I'm building a fort. <laughs> right, exactly. Got a lot of shelves to put up. My kid wants a treehouse. What? <laughs> you, you, did you ever see Swiss Family Robinson? Yeah. So how do you think a person – oh, I wanted to mention really quick, um, we were talking about genetic uh, engineering and we're talking about a society that's post-scarcity and everybody seems to love their job. For me, that sounds like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World to me. Yes, but. I, I, improv is supposed to be yes and, but yes, but. <laughs> I'll take it, but. Um, the, 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 the difference, I would say, between those things is in Huxley's Brave New World, it's calculated where in the social strata – Every individual will go sure. by how they're decanted because no one's born 
Right. Everyone is manufactured. The, you know, people are manufactured in the same way. Right. And so basically they analyze the embryo and say, oh, this one has the potential to be an alpha or a beta, so sure. we'll let it develop normally. Oh, this this is only a, a C, so we're going to feed it this in its embryonic fluid and, and neuter it so that it's in, at this level. Right. Oh, this this is already going to be a, a, a not very bright individual, so we'll uh, make sure that they, they, they stay that, and, and they are conditioned from birth to do you know menial jobs and manual labor right so basically there's no such thing as upward mobility you are born into your caste and and that is where you are sure where in star trek you are still whoever you are and your natural talents allow you to do whatever within your natural talents is possible for you your level of success at that will potentially vary by the effort you put behind it sure but if you find that the thing you thought you'd enjoy doing you don't like you can switch over to something else and the consequences are minimal because it's not like you have to do that because if you don't do that you can't make your rent you can't yeah there's no capital so i mean with with the fact that you know uh, there seems to be no limit to energy within reason there seems to be no limit to space within reason because of colonization right um the major problems that cause economic or personal strife for humans goes away and so there's there's no reason to be greedy because everybody can be a millionaire or have the effective material wealth of a millionaire yeah. within certain you know limitations yeah so and there's apparently there's a social engineering aspect too because if we're to believe maybe this is just the hardline propaganda we get from starfleet but every time starfleet our characters on the show describe the world it's like we don't pursue this stuff. We don't care about this stuff, you know? Yeah, they, people go, you don't have it? Yeah, but we don't want it. There's got to be some people that want it. I would say as a general rule, generationally, my grandmother's generation, segregation was still a thing, and therefore being a bigot was normal. Right. My parents' generation, they went through all that, and they said, bigotry's not good. My generation grew up with the whole, we know bigotry is wrong. We know it still exists. We're, we're trying to work past it because it was vi- still kind of recently a thing. Right. My my generation's children, um, because I'm, I'm almost 40 and I've got a, a classmate who's eldest just graduated high school. Wow. Um, well, she started early. Um, <laughs> he understands that that was a thing. And he understands that in places it's still a thing, but the concept is foreign to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in the same way that growing up, certain slurs uh, for homosexuals were commonplace, casual insults. Most of us didn't know what it actually meant. Right. Then we learned what it meant, like oh. And then some of us learned that that you know is not good because we choose to believe that you can have whatever orientation you want. Yeah. And therefore, that's being a thing. And again. Her son does not have that problem because, again, he's been growing up with the whole, it's okay to be whoever you are. Don't stop it because of whatever rules cause you to believe that. So if you've got people being raised for several generations to not have that be a thing, historically they'll know it was, but they won't even really be able to fully understand it because the whole concept, they've never really seen it or witnessed it. So I I have to imagine that after... 150 years of scarcity issues not being issues. Yeah. The motivators that were brought out in people by those um, scarcity issues will be lesser 
Uh, those, you know, greed might still exist in people, but what is the point? So unless you have a specific have the thing most step where, where being greedy gets you something, it yeah. doesn't really matter. So That's true when you eliminate. The so the competitions you see are who's the first to make the scientific breakthrough that we're all striving for. Uh-huh. Um, and that's, that's the kind of intellectual competition I can personally get behind because I think that's awesome. Sure. Um, but there's, there's, there's no reason, you know, one has to wonder, do the Olympics still exist? That's a good question. Well, they wouldn't um, let genetically engineered people in it, that's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a question of, is, is physical prowess something that we go out of our way and, and strive for? They sure in, like in playing Parisi squares. I don't know what's involved with that, but... I think someone watched American Gladiators and said, <laughs> yeah. let's put that on the show. Yeah, I think so. That's a really good point that you made. And I think it puts into context, uh, often on all the shows, the characters talk about, um, but especially on TOS and TNG, our barbaric roots, you know, when we used to kill each other with, you know, clubs and knives and stuff like that. And you think, boy, it's kind of harsh. But then when you think back only, you know, 175 years ago, we decide the government decided, well, I guess a black person is, is three fifths of a person. Right. It puts it into a little better perspective. Yeah. No, you have to remember that in, on a comparative level, when Star Trek was made versus, you know, TOS, when TOS was was in first run versus the timeline to which it's supposed to be, the equivalent would have been the late Renaissance. And so to imagine um, Sir Walter Raleigh, let's bring Sir Walter Raleigh to 1980. What would, what would his reactions be? That is us watching the Star Trek universe yeah. in terms of the time differential. Sure. So, yeah, it, it'd be huge culture shock. That's interesting. Um, I just wonder if uh, Brian, as a sort of discontent and a guy that can't seem to find his uh, place in the society, if he would be like the type of person that Mustafa Mann would send off to the island. And I think there might be a show there, uh, a Star Trek <laughs> show, about people who just don't fit. You know, they're unevil necessarily, but they don't fit into the society. Well, penal colonies still exist. So oh, yeah, there, sure. there, are, there are certainly, yeah. apparently still sufficient crimes where you need to be locked away from everybody else. Yeah, right. Prisons are not something that, that have completely gone away. But they are extremely sparsely populated from, from what we can see. Yeah. And Brian uh, himself is going to go make license plates for two years after the end of this episode. So. Right. Let's talk about the Rom and Lita story. Um, side story, I guess. Uh, Aaron Eisenberg and Chase Masterson, of course. Really great uh, regulars on the show. Do you feel like this... We mentioned before that they had planned originally to make this the whole episode. Do you think that this could be a whole episode? We've had Rom and Cork <sighs> stuff before. Oh. Um. It would certainly be breaking the mold of what you'd expect out of a Star Trek episode. Or especially in a DS9 um, episode, too. It, well, DS9 is the only place you could pull that off. I mean, Im- imagine having uh, a storyline where, for whatever reason, all the Enterprise crew are regressed 15 years, and Riker and Troy are reliving the time that they were like originally oh. together. And have that be the central thing of the episode. I mean, it, that's it, amazing. They're all sexy teens now, and they're right. <laughs> that's amazing. And I'd be like, "Ooh, I don't know." I mean, we sort of saw what would happen if if certain people were de-aged in the episode. Oh, where, where rascals, you know, yeah, rascals. Right. But uh, you know, imagine that on a global scale for the entire crew to a point where you know that kind of shenanigans could happen. Yeah. So. I mean, it's a cute it, it's a cute storyline, but even just referring back to Tapestry and, and, and maybe Picard. Oh, yeah, sure. Right. Uh, with following um, that also in a timeline where he, he has the date with his friend and, and they, they went from being friends to not friends and that ruined their relationship. Right. Yeah. 
So I, I, you know, it's a cute story, but it's just so light, and it it's funny because Star Trek often takes uh, things that we expect, um, tropes, story elements, and then kind of puts it that twist on them um, from a societal perspective or a science fiction perspective. But this is basically just like this guy likes this girl, he doesn't know how to tell her, and then eventually he's like, "I'm gonna tell her," and then he tells her, and then they get together, and it's very conventional. I I, I also, again, personally, uh, can relate to Rom in that situation. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, someone who's got a huge crush on someone on on, you know, to to play on on the very objectifying scale of of you know. You, Heading outside your weight class right. in appearance, sure, um, and being really intimate. It's like, but really having a connection and knowing that she's got something for you too, and yet you still can't capitalize on it because every time you see her, you just collapse into verbal putty. Um, yeah, I, I've I've been there. I can relate to that. Uh, unlike him, I wasn't getting obvious, clear body language signs when I was having the communication. Like, dude, are you blind? She's yeah. throwing herself at you. Well, it's interspecies. Just... Maybe it's not quite the same. May, 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 maybe the signs are enough different that he can't tell. But right. watching the episode, I'm like, man, I wish I was you. But <laughs> there's a there's a element in uh, in the third act uh, where the secret, you know, of of Julian's secret is sort of revealed through skullduggery because of the LMH. Is I there. wouldn't call it skullduggery. I would call it just accidental misunderstanding by his parents and not understanding that that, that was a hologram and sure. not actually Julian. But. Well, I always wonder why we don't see people using the holodeck for things like that. Like, so Rom's got a confidence mm-hmm. problem, right? He doesn't know how to mm-hmm. talk to Lita. Why doesn't he make like a holographic Lita and he can like do scenarios and like practice asking her out? And I mean, if, if Data can hook up with Joe Piscopo to learn how to tell jokes, I mean, Rom could do that. Yes. Um, and, and, <sighs> The holodeck and hollow suites with, with quarks programs. Mm, sure. Quarks. Um, they've always posed an interesting thing on that. And, and, the, and the question at that point is... <laughs> We're just hitting every element of 24th century society here. Well, I, yes. But, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's fine. Um, one has to wonder if, again, on a society level, if those sorts of things are kind of weeded out and the, the fact that... You know, there, there's reputations for for how certain places are. So you you think of like a, a dive bar, and you get an image of what a dive bar is. Sure. Um, and so, I, okay, dive bars are probably pro- quite rare <laughs> in in this economy. So, if to experience that, you'd have to have a hollow suite. But but to do something to fake interact with people you actually know, yeah. That's a questionable thing in and of itself, and some of that was addressed with some Barkley episodes back in TNG. That's true. Yeah, certainly, I mean the, the the whole. Obviously, it's a social taboo for him to be doing what he was doing and making you know Troy the princess and Riker the <laughs> yeah. the rogue that he had to overcome, right? And and do his play acting. On on the other hand, if your imagination is vivid and yet limited at the same time, it's like I need a princess. What do I want? To, what? How, how do I? Do, if you can choose to have someone look like anybody and you have to describe it in, in detail to truly get it, isn't it just easier to say, I like this person. So just make it that person. Right. And, or, or, or the other thing, even if it's just not that, but just option paralysis saying, okay, I know what I like. I have a type in the people I like to date, but if I could craft someone from the clay, if I could be, you know, Pygmalion, um, do I make it a redhead, a blonde, or a brunette? I'm stuck on just the hair color. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or it could just be unconscious as well. It could just be like, oh, uh, let's see. Uh, lots of curly black hair, uh, black irises. Oh, crap. I've made Counselor Troy. I wasn't even thinking. Right. And and just realizing that what you like is someone who already exists. Yeah. And the computer's going, I see where this is yeah. going. <laughs> the computer's like, uh. <clears throat> and and, and there have been numerous questions about how intelligent is the enterprise computer? Oh, yeah. And is oh, it boy. almost sentient? Is it sen- If it can run the holodeck characters who act as though they're sentient and don't know any better or worse still, Moriarty, uh, yeah. What does that make the computer? Like the lack of AI research is something that we could totally get into, but we probably should save for yeah. another show. I think that we've revealed, um, good job, by the way, uh, you and I have revealed that there is this sort of unwritten rules of the pool, uh, no horseplay, uh, right. no running, but that isn't explicitly stated in the show because we are like Sir Walter Raleigh looking at this society where they all know this stuff. They're, no, they're not going to go and make some fake person. Why would they do that? To take the time to describe the social mores of a society that you know doesn't exist. You, yeah. The, the simple thing to do is start with what people know, expressly call out the things that you wish could go away, and just don't describe the rest. Let people fill in the gaps on their own. Yeah. Um, and I think Star Trek has done a really decent job of that. But then DS9, which makes a point of saying, all right, so here's the thing with a utopia. There's always the dystopia along with it. There's, there's no, there's, there is no utopia. So what would, what would yeah. the downsides be in this kind of a world? And it's going to be as our, the humans are great. The humans are only one race of the people we're interacting with. How, how are the Klingons doing? How are the Ferengi doing? The Ferengi are still corporate creeps. Um, how does that play when you're dealing with? You don't use money. I don't understand you. Right. I'm like, right. How, how, how do you then? How do the how do the Starfleet officers buy anything at Quarks? Right, exactly. It, does the station just get an allowance of it's, latinum? Yeah, that, and they just bill it. <laughs> it's all so so all the latinum the Quark pays in rent, then goes back to the staff to go back to Quarks, which he then pays in rent. Right. It's just that those those bars of latinum just keep rotating through the station. Right, I've seen this one before. Yeah, um, I wanted to talk fast about something that's gaining steam as a controversial topic in movies and television these days. Um, the phenomenon where an actor is playing a character whose background or nationality is different than their own and the properness of that. Um, not directly related to this, the but similar issues. Yeah, whitewashing. Um, and the way that Star Trek uh, deals with that, um, whether it's good or not. Like, for instance, it's a little messy with Bashir's parents. Brian George is has you know multi-ethnic um i'm sure sort of a middle eastern sort of thing is in there somewhere um the actress that plays his mother is egyptian um sitting is sudanese himself and so that's i think a lot more forgivable than having a you know white actress play a traditionally asian character or something just to just, just to, to call out ghost take something shelf, out yeah. yeah right exactly um ronald d moore specifically said that when he wrote for Bashir when they created Bashir they just always pictured him as being the same nationality as the character um, and they didn't get a ton of mileage out of that but they thought it's perfect like you got this guy we hired him because he wasn't you know white and also because he's great and so let's have the character you know be that but do you have a stance on actors of different races playing different roles I believe that in, in a country as diverse as ours there's no real reason you shouldn't be able to find someone who's capable mm. of playing un- unless you're going for a fairly s- obscure ethnic group within you know 
we live in in Minneapolis, and therefore it's easy to find Somalians. Sure. Um, if I wanted to find someone Taiwanese, on the other hand, that is also an actor, mm. that is going to be a much narrower pool. And if the narrow pool that shows up doesn't really fit what I'm going for, Taiwanese isn't working. Do we have anyone from Hong Kong or you know someone where the appearance is close enough? Yeah. But you know, the, there's there's several comics uh, that I listen to who make jokes about uh, you know. Koreans, Chinese, and Japanese are all very different in appearance, clearly to them, where I know several people of a more Caucasian persuasion who wouldn't be able to tell the difference at 50 paces. Hmm. Um, I've gotten good at it because I have a lot of Southeast Asian friends, Um, but I can't tell the difference between certain ethnicities either. Yeah. Um, I mean... Yes, the Soviet Union had a whole bunch of different states in it, and and, oh, yes, and, and now independent countries, and and you know, while they all look kind of the same, there's also ethnic differences in those regions as well, and you know, you can hear it in the language more than you can necessarily see it. Sure, um, but those subtle differences were enough to go to war over in you know, in various places. Uh, looking at uh, Yugoslavia or or, uh, or uh, Czechoslovakia back in the day, I mean mm-hmm. the. Sarajevo was just a nuthouse for so long. Yeah. So, I mean, e- even within the same genetic stock, you're going to have subtle breakdowns that are enough to fight over. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how many times did Germany go to war with the rest of Europe? That's so, um, you know, uh, that's going to be a thing. So, I honestly, I, I think it is good if there's no reason not to and your actor is ethnic to have that character then become that ethnicity if you can find a way to incorporate that and, and make that a strong part of the character. Yeah. Honestly, while I could tell that Julian or, or um, Alexander was uh, of a different ethnicity than myself, the differences were far more subtle than, say, Michael Dorn. Sure. So, And um, so I think Star Trek gets off the hook often because being in space, they're not telling stories about Earth cultures generally. Correct. So you have yeah. these represent, uh, representatives of these cultures who are separate from it. Using your example of um, casting a, a Taiwanese uh, actor for a Taiwanese character, I think it comes down to like, what's what's the story that you're trying to tell? And why are you trying to tell that story? Right. You know, if it's a story about a person you know, of Taiwanese culture or set in their culture, you're only going to have more context you know if you involve people from that culture otherwise what are you trying to say about that culture in particular or if you want to create a small kerfuffle cast a taiwanese character as a you know classically chinese hero Mm. of of the post-separation era so i mean you cast a taiwanese character actor as as mao zedong uh it's probably not going to go over well yeah and i mean just the previous example like um the cast of ghost in the shell was very diverse um but they even had characters who there was like a can't remember the guy's name but there's a like a taiwanese guy that's playing like the japanese street cop guy and i've read an interview with him and he's like you know, and I, I agree with him. Like, you can't really blame actors. Like, an actor needs a job and is going to take the job. And he says, you know, I tried to do my best to try to represent, like, what this Japanese character was. But no, I'm not, I'm not Japanese. Or, or the other kerfuffle of, of, of recent note, uh, uh, The Ancient and Doctor Strange. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. Being cast as, as Tilda. And, and they make the story excuse of, well, it, it's not the comic version that you're all familiar with where they are Tibetan, where now it's, she's, I, I think it was Celtic. 
is, yeah. is what this incarnation of the ancient was because she goes through incarnations. And apparently that is something that is canon in the comics. But the, the time frame of when the story was taking place should have been the, the, the Tibetan one. But and I think Tibet that, is its own little interesting problem right now. Yeah. because it, it was an attempt on their part, I think, to avoid that controversy. Right, and, and by avoiding it, they created it anyway. Yeah, So and on that note... Um, this has suddenly become the Marvel movie casting show, but uh, the New Mutants uh, movie has cast a couple people, and there's a, been controversy because they've cast an actress uh, to play the role of Danny Moonstar, who is a Cheyenne um, Native woman, and she is like like a quarter Native, like she's not like full Native, and some people don't think that that's adequate. They have a character, uh, the character of Sunspot, who is an Afro-Brazilian. They've cast a Brazilian national actor to play him, but there's no, he's not, uh, there's no Afro part. And so a lot of people say, well, that's not good enough. Well, here's the other thing, too, is if if, if you're taking a story that already exists and trying to cast it from one medium to another, it's simply a question of how true to the original story are we playing? Because if you're true to the characterization so that it's still the character with whom you're familiar, and they've tweaked the ethnicity, but they changed the background such that that the ethnicity you know from the comics doesn't exist because this is the movies. Yes, right. And while they're the same character, they're not the same character. So get over yourself. Um, making an effort to make it as close as possible is great. Um, to to look at another potentially poor choice if they use the Danny Strong. Was it Danny Strong? No, Danny Strong's an actor. Danny Iron Rand. Fist. Danny Iron Rand, Fist. yes. Right, yeah. Danny Rand, that's what I was trying to think of. Danny Strong's Buffy. Um, <laughs> right. No, the the Danny Rand, yes, there is a Caucasian Iron Fist in the comics, but he started out as not a Caucasian character, so let's maybe use that version instead there, to not... There'd do. be no but, you issue know, there, sure. The realities are, is, is as you say, it, the, the producer and director casting the show, the casting crew, whatever want the show to be as good as possible. So they want the talent that is going to make the character come to life as closely as possible. Yeah. I would say ethnicity being quote unquote correct to character is an added bonus, Mm -hmm. but I don't think you should limit your talent pool a hundred percent on that. But you should certainly make sure you put the call out to say, yeah. looking for this type of character, this ethnicity preferred, or or if it's a gender neutral character, go either way, and you want to have more diversity in your casting. Yeah, say, you know, male and female both can apply, even if the character in the original story was traditionally male, you could you know, switch it or you know, whatever. Sure. So it, it, it's really the casting choice, you know, of of the director, um, and and whoever's making the film. But on, honestly. If you're if you're pulling from source material, <clears throat> one to avoid nerd rage, cast as co- as closely as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because there are people who love their precision. Right. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, in in terms of things, I I enjoy seeing more diversity in in stuff because seeing the same old people all the time is really dull. <laughs> that's yeah. That's something that I just really struck me about the New Mutants thing is it, it was clear the studio was trying to head that off. Like they went out and got like a guy from Brazil. But the thing, and I have a friend who's, who's very upset about this, and I understand where she's coming from, is that this character, like one of, the, in one of his first appearances, he is being mocked by other, you know, peers or Brazilians because of his skin, because he's like too dark to them. And that's an important part of his experience. And so, but the studio is just like, check, got it, Brazilian guy. And they're like, that's not good enough. We were trying to do the thing. <laughs> yeah. 
So again, it's a sensitivity question. is is job number one. It, it, it's a, it's a question of what part of canon is important to you. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, it and and as um, as Martin Luther King Jr. was the person to keep Nichelle Nichols playing Uhura because right. no, you, you you as much as you might want to quit, you are an inspiration to a generation of young women growing up right now. Yeah, not not only black women but white women too. In the fact that you are a you know. A, Recurring strong female character who is respected by her male peers, yeah. and not just Yeoman Rand, not 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 well, to Matt yeah. Yeoman Rand, but you know, y- you have authority on 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 the bridge. You are the specialist in communications. You are part of the core bridge crew. You 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 cannot leave. Yeah, and that kept her on the show, and the rest is history. So yeah, I think he just liked the show too. It's a pretty good show. Well, he, it was a great show. <laughs> Uh, well, we've just gone on forever, uh, but it's been some good stuff. Uh, as we wrap up here, do you have any uh, last thoughts about the episode? Um, well, again, I, I, I really like this episode. Uh, and and uh, two characters that sp- speak to me personally out, out of my favorite of the Star Trek series, because uh, DS9 is my jam. Um, <laughs> so so both both the awkwardness of, of trying to ask out someone who, who you, you deeply care for and, and sure. who you believe yeah. cares for you, and and having... The thing that finally gets you to do it be the competition's going to win if you don't make your move, right? Um, and then also seeing that the the quiet doctor who's who's grown to to be amongst the crew still has things that not everybody you know. There, there's aspects of him that that he was keeping to himself and and didn't want known that were beyond his control. He didn't make the decision. Yeah. Um, but because his upbringing was what it was and things beyond his control put him in a position that could destroy his life. Yeah. Um, depending on, on how it played out. Um, and having grown up in a situation where my mom was known at my, my elementary school, um, due to reasons. Um, I, I was not well liked. I was, I was frequently picked on. And so my, my mom came in to, to make sure bullying was not a thing. She was very much an anti-bullying person. Hmm. Um, but then she developed a reputation as as something to the point where I had teachers go out of their way to mess with me just to see how my mom would react, <laughs> much to their chagrin later. Wow. Um, so, I mean, see, seeing how um, your upbringing can really affect who you are. I mean, my, my, my mom raised me to be a perfectionist and, and getting past that, um, some, some of the neuroses that uh, I, I've managed to get over in my in my adult life, um, I can stem back. And, and, and my mom admits, yeah, she maybe pushed me in directions that did not work well for me mm-hmm. given the rest of my situation. But, uh, uh, our, our family history on, on, on that score is, is such that, uh, it's not a surprise, but it's good that I'm breaking out of it faster. You know, and, and she's, you know, generationally we're, we're getting better at overcoming whatever our familial issue is that seems to get passed on. So sure. you know, heaven forbid if I ever have kids and I have to deal with that issue, but uh, <laughs> well, we'll keep, ho- keep hopefully moving forward. <laughs> with, 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 with this, they'll, they'll, they'll come and figure it out in, in their mid to late teens. So sure. we'll, we'll be okay. And the teen angst will not be a problem. Uh, I, I like this episode too. I mean, I, I don't feel like uh, I'm picking on it when I'm being critical of it, but the fact that it can inspire a conversation like this, that takes us all the way from Sir Francis Raleigh all the way to the future, uh, I think is great. And as far as the sensitivity sort of issue, that's something that Trek has, I, I'm still like, as you're talking, I'm, there's a sub-process in my brain that's trying to think of some point where they really dropped the ball. And I, I really can't think of, there's got to be something, but nothing springs to mind. No. And the fact that the production has always been committed to presenting you a vast array 
of colors, creeds, races, religions, and that sort of thing. It's it's really like I just don't know. This is fifty years old, and they are still at the forefront of this, and it's still an issue because there's just been this flap recently with people who think that there aren't enough white men in the Star Trek Discovery trailer, and it's oh, like, good lord, what are you guys fans of? I don't even understand what you. I mean, it, it, what, what's what's even more brilliant about that trailer is that Michelle Yeoh gets to keep her Chinese accent. Yeah, exactly. And, and as a and as a Michelle Yeoh fan, I I am so looking forward to seeing Discovery now because I, I heard she got cast like. <gasps> And you got to keep her accent, and I'm like, oh. yeah. so this this is I, I I have high hopes. Unfortunately, I do not have CBS All Access. <laughs> well, we'll we'll work it out because we are definitely um, I haven't really addressed it on the show yet, but we are definitely going to cover the new show. I I I, I I think we got to find someone, then we have to do viewing parties. Oh yeah, that's yeah. that's how this has got to work. We'll have you back to talk about it. Uh, in the meantime, though, uh, let's talk. My space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's <laughs> your favorite captain and why? Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Cisco. Right. Um, He's uh he comes in he's he's a little broken yeah he he he's a real person in this Star Trek you know I mean everyone that we've seen the other captains okay Kirk certainly not perfect but always got away with whatever he was trying to do yeah even those times that he really shouldn't have um, Picard was just a little too much the perfect <laughs> diplomat I mean I, I respect he the was hell out of him mean to kids and then he wasn't later and that but, was his arc <laughs> I mean yeah where where Cisco's broken. He's accidentally made a prophet to a religion that he's no part of and wants no part of. Yeah, speaking of representation in, um, in cultures. And grows into being a strong leader who is at the forefront of a war that he wanted nothing to do with, and yet he is the front line uh, and does what's necessary. Mm-hmm. In the pale moonlight, man, I'm just... Yeah, mm. here's to the good guys. So, uh, yeah, Cisco. He, 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 he even even knowing what he was doing was wrong. He said, "No, this this has to happen. We have to get him on our side." He tries to confess. You know what? Delete log. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, can can I live with this? Yes, yes, I can. He's gonna have to. So I I I think he is probably the most badass. Well, uh, at the end of the show, you receive a commission at the rank of ensign. Congratulations. What department on the ship would you work in? Oh goodness. Uh I know I would be wearing a blue shirt. Beyond that, I can't say f- with a certainty, mm-hmm. but I know my shirt would be blue. You know, blue shirts on a, a spacefaring vessel do different things than people on a stationary station. So would that affect your choice? Uh, not overly much. They still seem to be the sciences. Sure. And, and but I you're feel... not going to be scanning nebulae. You're you, know, be, you know uh... what? No. I, I think I remember uh, what, I, what I was going to say. I, I think I would work at Memory Alpha. Oh, okay, sure. I, I'm I'm a database guy by specialization within the field of IT, um, and I'm I'm also a programmer. But but the database is where I'm at. So I think I think I would work at the repository of all knowledge. Okay, that 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 seems like it would be fitting. Sure, sure. And uh, checking uh, edits. Do you think Memory Alpha is uh, is a wiki in the oh, 24th goodness. century? <laughs> <laughs> am, am, am I the fact checker? Am, am, am I am I the Snopes of the 24th century? Right. <laughs> People can. Uh... Um, you know, that's an interesting question. Would I be the, the fact checker or, or would I just be data mining? Um, you know, I would probably be the one looking for those weird correlations to see. So so this started to become a problem around here. What what other societal changes happened for us for, for, for what's going on? So, okay, okay. so I, I would probably <laughs> hate saying this. <clears throat> I'm going I'm, I'm to go I'm going to go real narrow now. I'm working at Memory Alpha for Section 31, and I am looking for those things that we can use to fuel propaganda 
to win the hearts and minds. Okay, all right. Of, all right. of those races that we're in opposition with. Sure. Espionage by way of cultural anthropology. Is yes. Right. Okay. That's the most complicated answer I think we've had yet. <laughs> yes. That 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 speaks to me. I I'm Sith. So okay. Right. Um, sure. that, that that speaks to that side. So so I I would I would be that rare side on, on on the Star Trek universe where this everybody's happy and I don't get it. Right. <laughs> where where can I cause I tried trouble? gardening, but that didn't do anything. I mean, I'm not going to be Lord Garth, but I'm I'm still going to be a little I, propaganda in section 31 sound but but using memory alpha to to get the data and figure things out. Yeah, I that 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 works for me. I think that works. Uh, Ensign DeRaven, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Again, uh, my podcast is at scotch.xtlpodcast.com. Um, and then I work with Fearless Comedy Productions, which is at fearlesscomedyproductions.com. And I wanted to mention really fast that uh, your involvement with Convergence, of course. Sure, yeah. Uh, Convergence is coming up and should be still coming up uh, by the time this show goes up. So it's a four-day uh, fan-run convention, which means that it's uh, essentially not-for-profit. Um, there's a great number of guests every year. The theme this year is space opera and also space-related fiction and that sort of thing. So I know you're probably looking forward to that. Uh, I am. Uh, I'm one of the <laughs> as heads much of... as you can being knee-deep in... Well, uh... yes, I'm one of the heads of programming, and so I have been one of the people deciding what goes on the schedule and what doesn't of all the ideas that we received. And so there's there's definitely a lot of things on the theme, uh, right. space exploration. Um We've got several anniversaries happening this year. It's obviously the 40th of Star yeah, Wars. Right. Um, 15th of, of uh, Firefly being off the air. It's actually the 35th anniversary of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And um, arranged before uh, we were on each other's podcasts, so yep. there's no collusion going on. Uh, but we will be hosting a live podcast there at Convergence on Friday the 7th. Uh, about Star Trek II. I've got a great host of or a panel of guests that's going to join me to discuss what I think is probably the best Star Trek film. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an argument to yeah, that Yeah, I think that we will probably not spend too much time arguing about that no. at the panel. But yeah, so if you're going to be in the Twin Cities area, definitely check out Convergence from the 6th to the 9th of July. Tickets still available. And if you're at Convergence, check out the live panel. And uh, say hi to me or Cedius if you see us there. Well, thanks again for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. On your mind.